This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today, we'll talk about immigrants with Nation columnist Layla Lalami. Her new novel is The Other Americans. But first, Joe Biden has one thing in common with Donald Trump. Trump Watch starts right now. That's what Harold Meyerson says. He's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold Meyerson, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, Biden is way out in front of the other Democratic candidates. The polls right now say he would beat Trump by six or seven points. And the Emerson poll just out in the last couple of days in the Democratic primary has Biden at 33, Bernie at 25, way ahead of everybody else. Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren tied at 10, Mayor Pete at eight. Nobody else has more than three. You say Biden has something in common with Trump. You you really know how to hurt a guy. What exactly is it? Well, let me let me be clear at the outset. It isn't Trump's fundamental indecency, and it isn't Trump's nativism or or bigotry. Rather, both Biden and Trump uh, appeal to uh, a memory of a of a somewhat mythic America. In, in Trump's case, he goes back to the days when coal and steel were king, when white workers, uh, when, when white men essentially ruled the roost. When you say make America great again, uh, he is referring to that time when pesky women, minorities, young people, God knows who, you know, were contesting for power as opposed to simply uh, being subordinated, and uh, and that was the end of that. Now, Biden, in his own way, isn't nostalgic for all of the bad things that America has been, but the nostalgia is clearly there. And in talking to uh, his initial campaign rallies, which was to uh, mainly white workers in downtown Pittsburgh, he was evoking that time as well, and not really grappling with some of the issues we uh, we need to grapple with today. Climate change, perhaps, is emerging as, as the most uh, vulnerable point, although he has yet to actually formally release his position. In, in an odd way, to take the last line of uh, the great Gatsby, both, both candidates make an appeal that in some ways is borne back ceaselessly into the past. And, you know, if you look at the polling, if you disaggregate some of the polling on Biden, he, uh, not surprisingly perhaps, polls strongest among more elderly Democrats and weakest among uh, the surging uh, millennial and beneath them, the Gen Z Democrats. And so uh, this, this, this could grow into a real, uh, a real issue. Of course, the past that Biden would like to return to, and indeed talks about returning to, is not the white man's America of the 50s. It's sort of the Obama years. Uh, he's very specific. Obama, you know, signed the Paris Climate Agreement. Maybe we should talk about Biden on climate, since, as you say, that does seem to be uh, one of the big issues that separates him from the other Democratic leaders. Biden's climate plan, uh, as we are talking, has not yet uh, been made been made public. That there has been a Reuters story 
which uh, says it's, it's not going to embrace uh, the Green New Deal as such, and it may well embrace what some people view as transition technologies, by which is meant some of the fracking, since natural gas is, uh, is, is polluting but less polluting than uh, other forms of oil, and uh, as well, uh, nuclear power, which is clean but has not really been demonstrated to be any safer than it was uh, during the decades when uh, most major nations abandoned it. That said, Biden beginning his uh, campaign in a, in a rally to worker in, workers in Pittsburgh, this kind of commitment to a, a workforce which is still employed in, in the fossil fuel industry for whom much better transitions need to be created than those which uh, the apostles of the Green New Deal have frankly come up with yet, that suggests to me the potential for a real rift in the Democratic Party, in some ways a generational rift. In, in odd ways, the kind of rift, if not with the intensity that we saw in the late 1960s in the Democratic Party with the anti-war forces and the pro-administration forces of Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey, uh, at least perhaps a generational rift. And I think Biden, uh, in, in, a, in a way, could come to personify, much as he does not want to, one side of that rift. And that, you know, that could be a real problem, a uh, real problem for for the Democratic Party going forward, because there are real, I'd say, very serious, almost existential commitments on on both sides of this of this issue among constituencies that are historically or trending democratic. And the other past that Biden wants to return to is the Republicans before Trump. He sees Donald Trump's presidency as what he calls an aberration and says if he was president, he would work with the Republicans to get things done. Of course, we would love to get things done, but I wonder if you agree with him that the Republicans without Trump will be easier to work with. Well, let's check with Supreme Court Justice Merrick Garland and uh, see how, uh, how amenable the Republicans before Trump are to letting the Democrats put forth anything, compromise or, or otherwise. Biden entered the Senate in 1973 when there was still a liberal wing, not just even a moderate wing, a liberal wing of the Republican Party with senators like Jacob Javits from New York. No such people exist anymore in the Republican Party, not since at least the mid-1990s when Newt Gingrich became speaker and declared a permanent war on, uh, on the Democrats, and that coincided with the founding of Fox News, which created uh, a, you know, a safe little cocoon for uh, Republicans who didn't want to hear uh, any disturbing facts. And, and so this is, this is going to be 25 years. That's 25 years this, this, this year since uh, the ascent of Newt Gingrich and the creation of Fox News. And I, I fail to see what fantasy land Joe Biden is talking about. Now, there are a few other Democrats running for president who say, yes, we can, we can uh, work with our Republican friends. But Amy Klobuchar seems to be eager to co-sponsor bills of no discernible significance uh, so long as they have Republican co-sponsors. But none of this addresses the fact that the Republican Party has become an empirically closed cult that is not going to uh, meet the Democrats halfway, quarterway, eighthway, or sixteenthway on on any on any proposal uh, they make. So I think this is this too is 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 a kind of going back to an era which plainly hasn't existed for at least several decades. Biden's claim is that his middle-of-the-road strategy, as he calls it, can win back 
white workers who drifted into Trump's camp in, in 2016. Of course, Bernie also believes that he can recruit the white workers who were attracted to Trump with his program. We know it well, Medicare for all, a $15 minimum wage, uh, tax the rich, massive infrastructure program, free college tuition. I guess the question is, what do Trump's white workers want? Do they want the program of the 76-year-old white guy who was vice president or the 77-year-old white guy who is a democratic socialist and a senator? We don't we don't entirely know yet. You know, one of the things that Bernie Sanders has going for him is that if you look at labor issues, Biden supported every trade agreement which uh, the industry the white workers in 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 manufacturing and transportation and other fields, their unions all opposed. Biden also supported the Iraqi war, which Bernie opposed. Bernie was opposed to all those trade deals. And and so, you know, if you ask programmatically, philosophically, who's been the better friend of labor, the, uh, certainly it's been Bernie on, on, on the trade issue uh, and other issues. Michelle Goldberg, the New York Times columnist, took up this question uh, just this week on Tuesday. She She pointed out that some evidence that the Democratic Party has not moved left in the same way that the Republican Party has moved right. She says, we may have been mistaken in concluding from Trump's victory that Trump, I'm quoting from her now, in his own horrific way, seemed to expand the possibilities of American politics by proposing a radical critique of centrist Democrats as well as Republicans, and we assumed that the expansion would go in both directions. But she points out there are a lot of Democrats who don't want a revolution or even much of a political fight. They just want things to be the way they were before Trump came along. I wonder if you agree with Michelle Goldberg on that. Partly, not not wholly. First of all, uh, the rise of a younger generation that is clearly aligned with if not social democratic, maybe even democratic socialist politics, even if, and I, even if it doesn't constitute a majority within the Democratic Party, and I don't think it does, nonetheless, that is the future of the Democratic Party, because uh, th- those views are strongly held among voters under 35, whose numbers are going to eclipse uh, the baby boomers uh, in, uh, uh, in 2020. So it is not correct to say there hasn't been a movement to the left, it is correct to say it certainly doesn't encompass all of the Democratic Party. And I think it's a little early to believe that uh, Joe Biden's strong start is going to be uh, going to be, you know, with him uh, as, as he gets to his middle and uh, later on in, uh, in, in the campaign. Also, if you want to assess the strength of the left in the Democratic Party, and that's hard to do in, in some ways, but you have to add Elizabeth Warren's support to Bernie Sanders, support, yeah. since in many ways, despite their very different self-labeling, Bernie calls himself a socialist, Elizabeth Warren calls herself a capitalist, both of them are functionally social democrats who support pretty much the same thing. So I, I think we, we could see a primary season that does have some level of ideological polarization within the democratic primaries. We've been talking here as if the working class is the industrial workers in steel and coal and oil and petrochemicals, but there's also the gig economy. There's Uber and Lyft, and there's been some news just this week for the millions of workers who are part of that 
working class? Yeah, I would file this under suspicious timing event of the month. In in its first two days on uh, after its uh, initial public offering of stock, uh, the value of Uber shares declined by just about twenty percent. The Wall Street Journal ran a headline on uh, on Tuesday morning, which said Uber has poisoned an IPO market that was sick anyway. So really bad press for Uber. So who should ride to the rescue of Uber? but the Trump appointees on the National Labor Relations Board. In April, it turns out, the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board authored a a ruling that drivers for Uber and Lyft were independent contractors and they could never form a union uh, as, as a result of this ruling. Well, this ruling was not released publicly until this Tuesday, just as a the news of uh, Uber's dismal uh, performance on the market was uh, being bemoaned in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. It kind of makes you wonder why the NLRB released it on, on that day. It's, it's arguably the only thing to be released that could give investors in Uber maybe some hope that uh, all is not lost, albeit the fact that uh, if they felt that, it was due to the fact that workers at Uber essentially are never going to get a raise. So that's a suspicious event for for me of, of Trump bureaucrats, at least this week. Harold Meyerson, he writes for the American Prospect at prospect.org, and he's the first person to quote the great Gatsby on our show. Harold, thanks. Thanks for that and everything else today. I'm waiting for a payback from the Scott Fitzgerald estate. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about The Other Americans. That's the new novel by Leila Lalami. Her last novel, The Moore's Account, won the American Book Award and was a Pulitzer finalist. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Harper's and The Guardian. And of course, she's a columnist for The Nation. Leila Lalami, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, America is a country of immigrants, we all say. And the standard immigrant story is the American dream. Immigrant crosses the ocean, works really hard, becomes a success. The story in your new novel is a little more complicated. (laughs) As life tends to be. So the book begins with the death of a Moroccan immigrant on a desert road in a hit-and-run accident. And we don't know. There's a mystery about who's driving or whether it's an accident or or something else. And the guy who is killed is a Moroccan immigrant. His name is Dries Gerawi. And he came to the United States in 1981 with his wife following some political trouble he got into in Morocco and... He moves to the desert in the Mojave, starts a business, and the whole idea for him was that he would come to this country with his wife and find safety and opportunity. And the first paragraph of the book is basically this accident where he dies. So the thing that he was searching for, he doesn't find. And then, so the book is told from the perspectives of multiple characters, including his daughter, who's a musician, who returns home at the beginning of the book because of this death. 
his wife, who's now his widow, his other daughter, the person who runs the business next door, you know, the detective who's investigating the story. But basically, all of these characters have some kind of a connection to him, and the book is told from their perspectives. And the setting is not a big city immigrant neighborhood like East L.A. or the Bronx. Mm -hmm. Instead, you set it in a small town in the Mojave Desert. Already, we are surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, that sort of is the expectation. I mean, I was born and raised in Rabat, which is the capital of Morocco. And then I lived in London. And after that, I lived in Los Angeles. So I've always thought of myself as a big city person. It's a space that I feel comfortable in, the density, the noise, and all of that, and the mix of people. But in writing this book, I had two reasons for setting it in the desert. One was just because I like the desert. <laughs> and I, and yes, and I, you know, a few years ago, we started going out to the Mojave, actually. And I just really fell in love with the landscape and with the silence and the peace and the quiet and the sort of the fauna and the flora. And I just, I also like the fact that it's the landscape that requires your attention. It's not something that reveals itself if you're kind of a careless onlooker. It requires you to pay attention in order to notice the life that is happening there. And the second reason is because it starts with this hit and run, I thought it would be much more interesting to set it in a small town where the people who lost this man, his family members, might at some point come across the perpetrator of this crime. I guess we have to talk about Donald Trump and (laughs) the politics of immigration. Of course, he's made a big point about not wanting refugees from those whole countries. He prefers blonde and blue-eyed immigrants from Norway, he said. In your book, that issue, the politics of immigration, is often in the background and certainly in our minds as readers. Yeah, I I was wondering how long it was going to take us to, (laughs) before we got to Trump. You know, I have a theory that no conversation between any people in this country can last for long without Donald Trump coming up. (laughs) We went four minutes. Yes, that's So it is a question that has come up as I've been promoting this book. But I started working on this book in 2014, long before Trump announced, and frankly, but long before I even knew of his prominence. I mean, I honestly knew nothing about the man other than he was a real estate billionaire and that he had a TV show that I'd never watched. So I didn't really know anything about him. And I was working on this story about this immigrant. I've had a long-standing interest in the subject, also because I'm an immigrant myself, and I wanted to write a story about that sort of centers on this immigrant. The book basically explores immigration from multiple different perspectives. There's the couple who came here in 1981, but there's also one daughter who was brought here as a toddler and then one daughter who was born here. And it basically goes into their different experiences of immigration. One, even though she's born here, she still has the effects of that immigration are still felt upon her. And then there's another character who is an undocumented immigrant. So that's a completely different situation for him and and sort of the choices that he faces. Let's talk about the cop a little bit. This is not just an immigrant novel. It's also a detective story, a mystery. Mm -hmm. And mysteries are a well-established genre (laughs) with their own, you know, requirements and traditions. It's kind of a bold thing to step across the line into that territory. 
how hard was it for you to write about the cops and the detectives? Did you study Michael Connolly's <laughs> books? Uh, did you do, I don't know, ride-alongs with cops in the desert? Uh, we have a saying in Morocco that goes something like this. He who has a tongue will never be lost. Which the <laughs> idea being that as long as you ask questions, you will get answers. So I knew, you know, in working on this story, once I wanted to include an element of mystery that I had to basically do my homework. Fortunately, I'd, I'd grown up when I was young, like when I was in my teens, that's all I read was mysteries. So I actually was pretty well read from that, but I hadn't picked up a mystery in quite some time. So I wrote my friend Todd Goldberg, who's a crime writer, and I said, Todd, help me out, you know, give me a nice long reading list of what do you admire, what's going on. And so he gave me this long list and I went home and I read and read and read all these crime writers. And then I also did my own research. So as you mentioned, I went on a ride along with a sheriff's deputy from the San Bernardino <laughs> County Sheriff's what, what, Department. Tell us about the ride along. <laughs> what was that like? It was a long, it was 12 hours oh. and it was in the heat. And his name was Officer Campos. He was very nice. And we had all kinds of encounters during the day. And of course, I had to remain in my seat and obey all of his directives, but I got to see a lot. I got to see, you know, like arrests and things like that that he had to do that day. But what I came away with, honestly, was how much law enforcement is being used basically as like social work. Like, for example, one time we stopped because the neighbors had called the police because they were worried about this woman who they thought was feeling suicidal because she had lost her daughter. And so they he had to come and basically pick her up and potentially take her for a psychiatric hold. And mm -hmm. so it was like this whole, and you know, that's obviously something that I would imagine a social worker would be involved in, but instead it was the cops being called. I also researched the logistics of a hit and run because I was very naive when I started working on this book. I thought, you know, this guy is gonna die in a hit and run. The car comes out, hits him, he dies, right? It shouldn't be complicated, but of course it's complicated because what kind of a car, what kind of a collision would result in a fatality, uh, what clues might be left, uh, you know, yeah, all kinds of things, all kinds of things have to be sorted out. And um, I got really lucky because I was, a friend of mine connected me with someone who's a scientist and who basically serves as an expert witness on these sort of hit and run trials. So I basically did a lot of homework is what I'm trying to say in order to write the the mystery. I, I want to ask about your uh, column for The Nation. Yes. You started writing it three years ago. That was before the election when we all thought Hillary would win and so you would be, you know, a Muslim immigrant columnist at America's Oldest Weekly with a Democratic first woman president of America. Uh, and then after November 2016, you had a big new task. You were the immigrant Muslim <laughs> columnist while Trump was the anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant president. I, I doubt that was the job you thought you were going to take on. Well, I mean, I, I certainly, like many other people, thought that Clinton would win. But having said that, I do think that it's not just simply a question of anti-immigrant, but just like immigrant, because I don't mm -hmm. necessarily think that um, Hillary Clinton's approach was 
a progressive approach on immigration. So if you look, for example, at what made Trump stand out from among his his fellow Republican hopefuls, it was the immigration ban on Muslims, but it was also building the wall, right? So, but the wall didn't, the wall was there. It w- wasn't something that started with Trump. It started with Clinton. I mean, Clinton mm-hmm. started building the first wall. It was in San Diego and Tijuana. It was 13 miles of fencing. And the George W. Bush administration expanded that to another 700 miles. And then those those fences and walls were built during the Bush administration and the Obama administration. So what I guess what I'm trying to say is there is a sense of continuity between both Democrats and Republican administrations on immigration. And while his Trump's rhetoric is just hateful and, 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 and repugnant, we have to recognize that continuity. And when we talk about immigration, it's not a question of like, Trump is bad and Clinton is good, but more of like how this immigration policy that has been going on for more than 25 years, how has it helped the country? Has it helped the country? Has it hurt the country? And what exactly are its effects on people? You and I live on the west side of Los Angeles. You live in Santa Monica. <laughs> this is the most you know liberal, democratic, anti-Trump place in America, pretty much. There's only one precinct in all of L.A. County where Trump won. It was in Beverly Hills. But I wonder, you are an immigrant from Morocco. You're an American citizen. You're a Muslim. Do you worry about your safety? Well, I feel duty-bound to remind listeners that Santa Monica, however liberal it may be, produced Stephen Miller, who went to the high school some years ago (laughs) (laughs) that my child now attends. So, you know, I think, again, this idea that it's everything, like that it's either or, like we really do have to question that. And just yesterday, the Washington Post uh, revealed that Stephen Miller had been counseling the president to, you know, basically stage these highly public, highly visible mass arrests of immigrants and their families and their kids in their homes. And the only reason they haven't done it, because they've been working on it for a year, the only reason it hasn't happened yet is because Kirsten Nielsen said, well, I don't have enough the logistics of it. I don't have enough beds and I don't know what to do with the paperwork because some of them have U.S. citizens. What do I do? And so it was because of that that she was forced out. And as far as like living in Santa Monica, this goes back to what I'm saying. You know, it's yes, I feel safe on a day-to-day basis in my community, but I never let myself feel too safe because I know, based on the example of Stephen Miller, that there is this racist next door, that there is this white nationalist who could be living next door. And I mean, just yesterday when I was on Twitter and I linked to this Washington Post story, all factual, you know, I wasn't even editorializing or saying what I thought. I just said what the headline was basically saying. And some rando on Twitter says, do you have your green card (laughs) to me? I mean, and this is something that happens all the time, like go back to your country and things like that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I never allow myself to kind of forget about that, of that virulently anti-immigration strain that is part and parcel of American history. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's (laughs) news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get 
from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You just got back from a book festival in Minneapolis. I did. And Minnesota has the highest proportion of immigrants and refugees of any state. I looked up where they're from. Number one source of immigrants to Minnesota is Mexicans. Second, people from India. Third, Somalis like Ilhan Omar. Mm -hmm. Fourth, Hmong from Laos. And lots of them, of course, are refugees. What was your book event in Minneapolis like? Did any of this come up there? Oh, how interesting that you asked me that question, because while I was there, I had to do an interview. And the person who interviewed me is Moroccan. And the first thing she said to me, because it was her first time in Minnesota, she said, I don't understand. Like, this is supposed to be a melting pot. People are supposed to be mixed, but they don't mix. Like, everybody's in their own little, you know, area. But the event was fabulous. It was very well attended. And the conversation was really great. So it was a conversation with Tommy Orange, who did a book called There There. And it was moderated by Joseph Farag. Last question. The idea of the immigrant writer, you know, it's such a generic term. On the other hand, the idea of the immigrant is so central to our politics and our culture today. Do you want to be called an immigrant writer? I want to be called a good writer. (laughs) That's what I want to be called. And if you want to add anything else beyond that, as long as you put good in there, (laughs) then that's what matters to me. Layla Lalami, her wonderful new novel is The Other Americans. Layla, thanks so much for talking. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.